Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, the Taliban takes charge and launches a peace offensive. New York City institutes a vaccine passport for a number of indoor facilities. And homeless advocates occupy the park across from the mayor's home at Gracie Mansion. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In Afghanistan, evacuation flights resumed from Kabul's international airport today following yesterday's frenzy that saw thousands of Afghans swarm the tarmac, including some who fell off departing planes. According to the White House, the Taliban has promised safe passage to the airport for all who wish to leave the country. The Taliban was known for its brutality when it ruled Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. Speaking with Sky News, Taliban spokesman Suhail Shaheen said that civilians have nothing to fear and that a general amnesty has been issued. We have already announced a general amnesty to all Afghan people, for all those who have worked uh, in the Kabul administration, who have worked with uh, foreigners who are working in the embassies. So we have uh, uh, announced to them that uh, their property will be saved and their honor and uh, their life, they, uh, all those are saved. And we practically are showing by our actions and deeds uh, every day. After the headlines, we'll speak with two longtime U.S. peace activists who have visited Afghanistan many times over the past 20 years. And we'll talk about the situation in the country, why the U.S.-backed government collapsed so quickly, and the prospects for a more moderate Taliban regime emerging this time. Here in the United States, the number of new COVID-19 cases surged past 140,000 yesterday with more than 700 deaths recorded. The hardest hit states are in the deep south where vaccination rates are low and indifference to masking is high, leaving nothing to chance with the more contagious Delta variant in our midst. Mayor Bill de Blasio imposed new rules yesterday requiring people to have proof of vaccination to enter indoor dining, movie theaters, fitness facilities, and so on. It's easy. All you have to do is show proof of vaccination. That could be a CDC paper card. That could be an Excelsior Pass, an NYC COVID Safe app, whatever works. All you got to do is show that proof and have ID as well. And it's straightforward. Now, we're saying get at least the first vaccination. Of course, the goal is get everyone fully vaccinated, but get at least the first vaccination and you'll be able to work or enjoy indoor dining, indoor fitness. In New York, organizers from Abolition Park carried out a mini occupation last night of Carl Schur's Park across from Gracie Mansion, the Upper East Side home to the mayor and his family. They called on de Blasio to stop the transfers of unhoused people back to congregate shelters amid the ongoing pandemic. This is Tamir speaking from the Gracie Mansion Hotel as the park was renamed for the occasion. The plan is to just stay until we get what we want. So we don't plan on leaving anytime soon. But I guess that's not really up to us. The cops are going to drag us out whenever they feel like it. But we'll be here until that happens. The protesters left at 2 a.m. rather than risk arrest for violating the park's curfew. In environmental news, after acknowledging the horrors of the climate change-driven fires and floods around the globe, all seven members of the Governor Cuomo-appointed Public Service Commission 
have voted to unanimously raise monthly bills for 1.9 million downstate National Grid customers, forcing them to pay for the controversial fracked gas North Brooklyn pipeline, among other projects. Brooklyn community members living along the route of the North Brooklyn pipeline have vehemently opposed the project since learning about it in 2019 because it puts the health and safety of predominantly black and brown working-class neighborhoods at risk and will exacerbate climate change. This is Lee Zishi from the Sane Energy Project, an organization that has been at the head of the North Brooklyn Pipeline opposition. The PSC's decision to not only approve National Grid's rate hike, but claim that it complies with New York state law is the highest level of climate denial we've really seen yet from the Cuomo-appointed commission. 1.9 million people will be paying more for fossil fuel projects in 2021 than they ever have before, including nearly $129 million for the North Brooklyn pipeline. This rate hike continues a history of environmental racism. Yesterday, at least 200 members of the correction officers Benevolent Association rallied outside of Rikers Island demanding the Department of Corrections hire 2,000 additional correctional officers. In the past few months, around 1,000 correctional officers have left their jobs at the jail, citing violence caused by a lack of order. We have a rising inmate population and an inmate population that is the most violent that we've seen in years. And they want to know why we're out sick, because we're getting assaulted every day. And they're assaulting us with impunity. Nothing's being done to the inmates, but we're being disciplined through the roof. At Rikers, the health staff is routinely assaulted. Female officers groped and inmates, too, are suffering heightened levels of violence and neglect, some waiting five to seven days rather than 24 hours in intake cells. We just wanted to go into the work, do our quality patient care, and come home in one piece, not being beaten up or not being assaulted or not being threatened or holding hostage for hours. And there's not enough uh, correction officer and there's not enough medical staff. And when you don't have enough of the staff to do the work, that means the inmates, our patients, are not getting timely follow-up and not getting adequate care for them to to be well and they get really stressed out and get mad and that's when everything when they do got to they do take out the you know the housing to see a clinic or a PA or medical stuff that's when they get really upset. The New York State Nurses Association, 1199 SEIU and the Doctors Council, the three unions that represent healthcare workers in the jails organized a rally on Monday as well for the safety of their workers on Rikers but canceled when they saw how many COBA members showed up. They cited the difference in their demands. A small third contingent of decarceration activists led by Freedom Agenda was also present. Each group stood on a different corner of the intersection in front of the jail. And finally, Stanley Aronowitz has died. Aronowitz, an acclaimed sociologist and activist, wrote more than 20 books and was in the thick of many social movements over decades. Aronowitz taught at the City University of New York. In 2002, he ran for New York governor as the Green Party nominee. He was 88 years old. We'll be back with more after this short break.
survivor. I ain't lost and this ain't shipwrecked. I feel small in this big white world. And mommy ain't said, honey, I that was White Flag by the Gorillas, featuring Bashi Kano and the Syrian Orchestra for Arab Music. Welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. Also, our August issue is out on the streets in uh, news boxes on uh, street corners around the city, libraries, and other venues. So we'll talk later in the show about our cover story from the August issue. But first, we turn to Afghanistan and the unfolding crisis there. Joining us today to talk about the latest from Afghanistan, why the U.S.-backed regime collapsed so quickly, and what the future may hold are two longtime peace activists, Kathy Kelly and Medea Benjamin. Kathy Kelly is the co-founder of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. She visited Afghanistan many times over the past decade and worked closely with peace activists there. Medea Benjamin is a co-founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace. She also visited Afghanistan a number of times during the U.S. occupation. Kathy and Medea, welcome both of you to WBAI Radio. Well, thank you, John, for your welcome, and it's good to be with Medea. Yeah, same here. Great to see you both. Yeah, a great, uh, great uh, team here. So first of all, uh, uh, we'll start with Kathy. And Medea, you can chime in on this as well. What's the latest you're hearing from people uh, you uh, know back in Afghanistan? I understand a number of them have been uh, reaching out to you. Well, in fact, um, it's not certain how long they'll be able to do that. In one case, I have a young friend who is burying his phone every night and uh, because in his rural provincial village the Taliban are searching homes uh, systematically he's he's quite frightened uh, there are others in Kabul who who just are living with great great uncertainty they've heard from people in their home provinces about uh, terrible human rights violations that came with the Taliban in, in intervention and invasion and so um, many have said we want to survive and, and would like to get out. But of course, right now, the airports are closed down. The embassies are, um, many of them, uh, closed down. The um, Western Union outlets are closed down. And so uh, the pipeline, more or less, to try to leave the country is, is, is actually very fraught at the moment. And we don't know, you know, we really don't know um, to what extent people can uh, maybe exhale uh, for a bit. But, but one thing that I think we do know is that the conditions in the country in terms of health care and nutrition and, uh, you know, many other factors of survival beyond surviving bombing and attacks are just wretched. The, the situation is, uh, uh, you know, factor in severe, severe drought and a third wave of COVID. So our, our, our friends have reason to be anxious, tense, and uh, very, very fearful for their futures. And Medea, have you been hearing anything from people back in Afghanistan? Uh, yes, I have. And I would agree with what Kathy says, that you hear worse reports and those are secondhand 
uh, in the countryside that I've heard uh, more in the city is uh, that things appear to be calm, uh, that people are uh, surprised at the press conference that the Taliban spokesperson held today in which he said that there will be no revenge, uh, that there will be an amnesty even for people who worked with the United States, uh, that uh, women and girls will be able to go to school and work, although he put it in the context of Sharia law and who knows how that will be interpreted, but a tremendous effort to show the international community that this is a different Taliban than 20 years ago. We've also seen a very small group of women out on the streets uh, protesting for women's rights, and they were actually um, given security by the Taliban. And another quite extraordinary sign was an interview done with one of the Taliban leaders by a woman journalist, uh, which you would have never seen 20 years ago. So I'm not saying that the Taliban will be good or that we should uh, uh, assume they will fulfill their promises but I do think that they have learned a lot in these years uh, that they can't be as repressive and misogynist and backwards as they were 20 years ago, and that the international community is watching very closely now. Social media is very active, uh, and um, this will hopefully uh, uh, rein in some of the worst uh, instincts of uh, some of the Taliban. And I think there's also a need to recognize that there are rogue members of the Taliban, oftentimes in the small villages, that uh, cannot be controlled by the leaders at the top. So I think uncertainty is really the key word. Right. And speaking of 20 years ago, next month, uh, New York City and the nation will mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon that saw almost 3,000 people killed and provided the rationale for going to war in Afghanistan and later in Iraq as well. Uh, the World Trade Center attacks here in New York actually took place only a few blocks from where WBAI's old office was located, and it's obviously a traumatic day for the whole city as well as the country. And before we talk about the arc of the long conflict in Afghanistan, uh, here are the voices of three of the four presidents who have presided over the war in Afghanistan, starting with George W. Bush speaking to a crowd of first responders at the World Trade Center site uh, days after 9-11. And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States. 
of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat. Those were uh, Presidents uh, George W. Bush uh, in 2001, uh, whooping up the crowd to go to war in Afghanistan, and then uh, Barack Obama in 2009 announcing the surge. And then that was Joe Biden speaking yesterday, defending his uh, decision to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan. Uh, Medea and Kathy, your thoughts on the trajectory of this war and and how it started and where it's uh, ended? Joan, in terms of repetition of mistakes, uh, it seems to me that it, it, the, the militarists just simply do not uh, give up their presumed right to always get the upper hand. They make mistake after mistake after mistake after huge bloodletting and great cost and destruction. And yet there's still the presumption that they should get the lion's share of the budget and be able to control um, so many aspects of lives in our country and elsewhere. And, you know, in June of this year, the Air Force requested $10 billion to fund their, uh, quote, over-the-horizon plans to still be able to use uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, weaponized drones and surveillance drones in Afghanistan and other manned aircraft. And President Biden has long said that he felt that the best strategy for Afghanistan was a combination of special operations forces, surveillance and weaponized drones and uh, aircraft capacity to bomb Afghanistan. So, you know, in terms of mistakes, I think we ought to recognize that the United States has now basically equipped the Taliban with very sophisticated on-the-ground weapons because they were able to confiscate those from the Afghan forces in um, place after place all the way across Afghanistan. I mean, can you imagine if in our country a group of people with a track record like that of the Taliban were enabled by another country to acquire very sophisticated weaponry that they could then aim against our people? You know, I think we would not be a a group of people who would feel uh, confident about our future. So it seems to me this is the teachable moment when we have to start asking how many more colossal failures and enormous mistakes must the U.S. public be asked to pay for, to bankroll, before we will start to say it's time to dismantle this extremely, exceedingly dangerous and flawed military-industrial complex. And, Medea, your thoughts as the as the hawks uh, clamor on uh, cable TV for uh, Biden to take the fall for the war? I think it is a brave decision of Biden to follow what Trump did because Trump did negotiate a uh, exit of U.S. troops that was supposed to happen in May Biden postponed it until September, and he stuck to it, which is a positive thing. Uh, We should recognize, though, that the exit has been horrific and that they had so much time since the beginnings of the talk with the Taliban 18 months ago to start getting these visas for 
not just the interpreters, but for the people who worked with the U.S. in other capacities, as well as the uh, work with the NGOs, uh, people who would feel that their lives might be at risk and would want to leave. This could have all been done in such an orderly fashion uh, so many months ago. So leaving that to the end, having those horrific scenes in the Kabul airport and the uh, horrific deaths that we saw of people hanging onto planes, um, that was just, uh, uh, a, unfortunately, a um, symbol of the botched 30, uh, 20 years of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And it pains me to see these generals who uh, administration after administration lied to the American public saying that victory was just around the corner. Uh, and the, quote, military intelligence who couldn't even uh, tell us that the uh, uh, the Taliban was ready to take Kabul in a couple of days. And yet we see these same people on the TV now who are the experts, uh, all kinds of people who supported this invasion over the two decades, uh, instead of the people like Kathy Kelly, who put her life on the line for peace many times by going to Afghanistan under very difficult circumstances. I want to hear from us, the peacemakers, and I think the American people deserve to hear from the people who got it right from the beginning, saying there was never any reason to invade Afghanistan. That was not the right response to 9-11, especially if you recognize that 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, and that war is not the way to confront terrorism. So um, I would like, as Kathy says, to see this as a moment when uh, we dress down the military for the, the 20 years of uh, trillions of dollars that should have been spent on uh, all the needs that we have in this country, as well as helping impoverished people around the world. And uh, and that we need to get on board the people in this country that are working for uh, affordable housing, for Medicare for all, for elimination of the student debt, uh, for all of those things and say now is the time to come and get $350 billion by cutting the Pentagon budget in half. Uh, and that the American people deserve that money to be invested in real needs instead of making people's lives miserable, uh, both thousands of miles away, as well as the U.S. soldiers who were killed and maimed in this war. And why why is it that there's almost this uh, cult around the, the generals uh, and the military people with you know, they puff out their chests with the medals all over the place and like we're supposed to be in awe of them? What do you think is the source of that and, and how do we get past that? Because, it, frankly, it's almost infantilizing to have these people strut around and be on television and, and testifying in Congress and lie to our face over and over again. And and yet we're always supposed to, like, revere them. It's, it, either one of you are welcome to tackle that. Well, you know, I think after the Vietnam War, um, gosh, I can remember, I did not know a soul when that war ended, who would say, gee, let's do that again. And so the generals, the Pentagon, the military industrial complex, they got to work and said, we are not going to let that syndrome be repeated, the Vietnam syndrome, wherein people would be so down on the United States intervening in the affairs of another country and bombing the daylights out of them. And so, I mean, 
they were very systematic in figuring out ways to um, purchase for themselves major, major institutions. And I do mean purchase. You know, there are very few independent radio stations in the United States. I don't need to tell you that, John. And um, so when it comes to uh, think tanks having figured out ways to make sure that universities, media institutions, even faith-based institutions would become more and more reliant on militarism because it goes right into their budgets and into their classrooms and their curriculums. And and if they reject it, then they get punished by this um, military-industrial complex. It's, it's, it's so extensive. They've got a vice-like grip on education. So you won't find mainstream media groups rejecting the generals when they're at their doorstep all set to testify. And I, I think that uh, this certainly should be a time when, as Medea says, you know, the militarism is dressed down, especially when we can't have a rational conversation about climate change or pandemics if we don't talk about dismantling the military. But I, I, I don't see that happening anywhere commensurate to the need for it. In fact, you know, as we speak, they're, they're banging the drums to go to war against China uh, to, to keep on exacerbating antagonism with Russia. Uh, and 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 also the, the heartlessness, the cruelty of being obedient to the militarists who do not exhibit care for everyday human needs of people in the countries that they've ravaged. The heartlessness of that, you know, there's got to be, in a sense, some blowback to that. It's not good for the culture to be so dominated by by these generals. So yes, they puff out their chests. But I'd like to know where their hearts are. That's great, Kathy. And I just want to add that it's um, good you talk about the grip they have on the educational system. And let's remember the grip they have on our Congress, on our on the cabinet. Uh, this revolving door is just disgusting to see how you have members, uh, generals that sit on the board of weapons companies and that this is just a cycle. Um, they have a lobby group and, you know, they, they lobby the American public with our money. They have billions of dollars that they put into propaganda to sell themselves to us, uh, not at, at our, uh, the biggest sports events, at religious events, all kinds of insidious ways that they insert themselves uh, into the culture and the fabric of this country. And I think it's a, a indicative that it's very hard to find even the progressive Congress people coming out right now and saying, we never should have been in that war to begin with. This was a 30-year debacle, and I'm demanding now to see that this uh, military-industrial-congressional com- com- uh, complex be cut. Um, there's a lot of silence going on now. Uh, in the Congress, except for the people on the right who are saying that Biden should never have left, that we should be back in there, blah, blah, blah. But where are our advocates that we need right now to turn the narrative around and say, now is the time to educate a public who wants to hear this because the public is sick and tired of these endless wars, uh, but needs to hear now it's time to cut the Pentagon budget. Right. And uh, also note that uh, 
uh, Pacifica, WBAI is part of the Pacifica radio network. And Pacifica was founded in the night in late 1940s by uh, conscientious objectors to World War II who wanted to create a radio network that could uh, be a channel for, for peace and, and dialogue among people. So uh, we're proud to have that history. And, and uh, Medea, also, what is is Code Pink uh, involved uh, with uh, efforts to um, help uh, bring uh, refugees out of uh, Afghanistan or uh, on, on sort of that humanitarian end of things? What are y'all calling for? Yes, we are um, busy on many fronts. We are raising funds to be able to relocate some of the women that we have worked with over the years and who uh, feel that their uh, lives are at risk right now and to supply them with some funds for uh, living in the places that we're able to get them visas for relocation. Uh, we are pressing our Congress to do more to pressure the administration uh, to speed up the uh, visas for the various uh, groups that have worked with the U.S. over the years. Uh, there is now, uh, on the latest press conference that the Pentagon did, they're talking about getting uh, five to 8,000 people out every single day, uh, which is a, a pretty amazing ramp up of the, um, uh, the ability to deal with all the people who are at the airport now and uh, desperate to leave. Uh, so these are some of the efforts we're involved in, as well as pushing that the United States be the biggest donor to the international community efforts for humanitarian aid. Uh, it's awful to see people like Laura Ingram on Fox News saying, we really don't have a responsibility to the Afghan people. We certainly do. And a lot of that responsibility is not just getting out the people who want to leave, but also providing, as Kathy said, for the desperate needs of the people who are staying. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. But uh, Medea Benjamin and Kathy Kelly, thank you both for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. Good to be with you. Okay, we'll be back after this short break, and we'll talk about New York City parks and their history and the, the struggle to make those parks uh, serve ordinary people and not just the rich.
That was Kuye Atashin by Mawash, an Afghan singer. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton. We'll turn to our second segment shortly. I uh, just want to remind everybody that uh, you can help support this radio station by making a donation. You can call 212-209-2950, or you can go to give number 2 at org and become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month. And you'll get all sorts of great benefits from that, and you'll get the benefit of supporting of supporting this radio station and this radio station that's been uh, a part of the Pacifica network for 60 plus years, as, as we heard in the last segment and, and brings forward voices like Kathy Kelly, like Medea Benjamin and like our next guest, uh, Marika Plater. Uh, she has studied and, and written about New York city uh, park system. And on the, the, the cover story for this month's issue, uh, titled Parks for the People. We have a cover story by one of our writers, Olivia Reggio, and Marika is someone we uh, talked to in that article where we look at the history really of the class struggle around New York City parks, the whole question of whether our park system that we're all uh, loving and enjoying so much uh, during the summer months would be uh, a refuge uh, solely for the rich or be available to all New Yorkers. Marika, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening on WBAI. Thanks for having me. You bet. So uh, can you uh, just kind of uh, start by uh, sort of giving us a, a short, uh, I guess, history lesson on, on the New York City park system and, and this tension that's run throughout its history? Absolutely. Yes. So parks have been key sites of um, of resistance and refuge for working people um, since they began in the early 19th century and really the late 18th century. Um, the park system began as a kind of private initiative. Um, generally wealthy landowners would pay the city um, to develop open spaces um, or former commons in their neighborhoods um, to, to sort of turn into parks. And so they said kind of began as this sort of private effort by the wealthiest citizens. But from the start, working people would use these lands too. And from the beginning, there were, there were clashes over how these spaces would function. Were they places to, um, to enjoy the beauty of nature quietly, to stroll and see and be seen? Or would they be places of play and protest um, and also subsistence through foraging or peddling? Um, and so I look at these kind of struggles that started really, um, really in the late uh, in the late 18th century and how they evolved um, it, throughout the 19th century. Um, in the eight, by the 1830s, um, city leaders started building parks, but they generally only built them in up and coming neighborhoods. They kind of used parks as real estate development tools. Um, meanwhile, uh, were some of those parks, which are, I think, now very well known. Yeah. So um, Washington Square Park was one of those um, uh, that the city kind of set up. Um, it turned from a graveyard um, and a, really a potter's field, a place where people who couldn't afford to be buried in the cemetery would be buried. Um, then they they uh, 
filled filled and landscaped that area and made it um, made it a park um, to to sort of control uptown development. Um, Tompkins Square Park was supposed to be a real estate development scheme, but it didn't it didn't work. Um, a financial panic got in the way. It ended up being a working class park. Um, and, you know, Central Park's kind of the ultimate example of this. Um, it was a way to set aside a large amount of land um, in the upper reaches of Manhattan and make sure that it was going to be a very wealthy district. Um, but this has always been contested. Like working people have always asked for their own parks, um, for these parks to be well maintained and beautiful. Um, there were people in Corlears Hook, um, which is now part of East River Park, which I think we might be talking about a little, a little bit later today. Mm-hmm. Um, people were asking, this was a neighborhood known for shipyards and brothels. And as early as 1817, the residents were asking for a park there for pleasure and health. Um, they asked consistently for that park. Um, and, and their, their, uh, their pleas were not listened to until, until, um, the early 20th century. And, and, uh, can you share uh, maybe a couple, some of the colorful stories you, you, you uncovered of, of the kind of uh, resistance that working class people engaged in to to get these parks to serve them? Yeah. Um I mean part of the resistance was just breaking the rules. Like I always think like ru- rule breakers are the ones who really shape the culture of parks. Um so in the like if we're thinking about the early 19th century and we're thinking about the battery and the park at City Hall, um which were these parks that were kind of created by wealthy people, um working people would just come in with their militia companies which at the time militias have changed a lot. At the time they were kind of like working class party organizations. Um so they'd come and drill all over the gla- the grass and drink and play instruments. Um, there were uh, big iron gates put around the battery um, so that to sort of control use of that park to make sure that livestock couldn't come in and be grazed in the park. Um, but working people in 1826 tried to take down the fence. They like were bat- like hitting it with like old rusty kettles trying to break it down. Um, and when they couldn't break the fence, they turned and broke windows in the luxurious homes that were fronting the park. So they were kind of through this, um, through this, uh, really attack on the fence. They were trying to say like parks should be open all the time for everyone and for whatever, whatever people want to be doing in these spaces. Nice. And, um, uh, now with Central Park, part of the creation of that involved, uh, demolishing, uh, Seneca Village, which was home to, uh, free African-Americans as well as uh, some Irish and German immigrants. Can you talk a little bit more about that history? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the black community of New York City was looking in the 1820s to set up a kind of autonomous neighborhood. This was an era of just extreme violence, um, burnings of black churches and schools. Um, and so there were um, advocates that were part of mutual aid organizations and kind of advocacy organizations who were looking for land. Um, in 1825, they finally found it um, in what's now um, between 81st and 89th Street, I think, um, on along the west side of Central Park. So they set up this community that was really thriving. It had a lot of schools, um, I think three. It had a few churches. 
Um, it had farms um, and it had many residents, probably way more than we have officially. Officially, there are about 300, I think, on the rolls, but um, but there are many more buildings than were needed for that many people. So um, what historians believe is that this was a place where people who had freed themselves from slavery were hiding. They were far at this time. Um, uh, this area that's now Central Park was very far out of town. It was the countryside. And so it sort of created this kind of safe space away from the violence and the policing of lower Manhattan. Um, so this community was thriving, um, really thriving between 1825 and uh, 1857 when Central Park was created. And that um, that came with the demolishing of Seneca Village. And residents of Seneca Village really felt that the park had been sited in that location in order to displace them. Um, they felt that the 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 beauty and strength of this community was the reason why um, this this park was was created. And, and there were no reparations or um, compensation for what happened. The people who were landowners um, got some compensation. Um, the land was taken through eminent domain. Um, but it was, they were just vastly underpaid. Um, landowners did go to court to try to contest this, and some of them were able to get a little bit more, but they couldn't, you know, you couldn't get, uh, this land, this, this community was priceless. So, um, no one got what, what, what they deserved, and renters didn't get anything. Um, okay. And moving up to the present day, you, you talk about how 200 years ago, uh, the initial, uh, attempt to build parks was, uh, led by the rich on, on their own behalf. And uh, in recent decades, uh, after New York came out of its uh, fiscal crisis of the 1970s, we saw a, another trend toward uh, privatization of the parks, or at least some of the parks. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, with the fiscal crisis in the late 1960s and the 1970s, um, just New York City's budget was in tatters and the parks department budget was was basically reduced to nothing. And um, the parks began to really show wear and tear. Um, and so uh, uh, like community organizations started kind of taking care of their local parks um, and they um, often by uh, just uh, building infrastructure, by um, doing doing landscape maintenance, um, and so it's it's interesting that this kind of like self help effort um, sort of sort of merged into the story of conservancies, which are now taking care of our parks um, quite a bit, um, and conservancies are. Neighborhood groups, um, where, uh, where, uh, private donations run pretty much the maintenance of the park. So all of the biggest and best known parks in New York City have conservancies, the ones that look, um, that look very green and taken care of. Um, and so there's been this kind of privatization of these, these public spaces. So Central Park has a conservancy, Prospect Park does, the Battery does, pretty much all of the larger parks that are um, looking really well taken care of. But what that's meant is that all of this public, like the public monies um, it, uh, are not enough to take care of the other parks. And there's not enough money in those neighborhoods to take care of the parks. Um, people who are living there love their parks, but don't have the extra money to give donations to support these landscapes. Um, and so this this conservancy system, this privatization of parks that really began in the 1970s as the par- the city kind of learned that it could displace its responsibility to care for the parks um, onto wealthier residents. Um, it's really contributed to the inequality of our park system. 
Right. And just to note, uh, the Central Park Conservancy, I mean, their annual budget is around $70 million per year, uh, as one example. Yeah. And these, um, yes. And these, these smaller parks are just, you know, they're operating on a very small uh, percentage of that. The entire parks department budget, it's, I think, half of 1%. Um, of the city's budget. And so if you think about all of our parks, like sharing that tiny amount, um, they're, they're, they're not looking good unless there are wealthy neighbors who are kind of supplementing the city's, this, uh, the city's funding. Right. And, uh, last of all, I mean, one, one park that's uh, been at the center of a lot of attention that's in at risk is, uh, East River Park, a 46 acre park al- along the East River from uh, East, East 12th Street. Uh, down to Montgomery Street, uh, used by many residents in the East Village and Lower East Side, many NYCHA residents along that stretch of the FDR. Um, of course, the city wants to demolish the entire park and, and uh, put in eight feet, feet of landfill and then and build a new park on it. Um, and your thoughts of whether the, the city would contemplate doing something like this in a wealthier neighborhood as opposed to um, a working-class uh, neighborhood like the Lower East Side? Well, as a historian, I can say that the city has generally would never would never like destroy Central Park for for like something that would um, a project like this. Um, I'm thinking back to like the 1870s when um, there was a need for rapid transit in the city. And um, rather than building an elevated railroad that would go along Central Park, um, the park commissioners gave the railroad company the Battery Park, which at that time um, was known as the Poor Man's Park. They allowed this company to build through the Battery um, and trains ran, uh, ran for decades over that park, splattering hot oil on people, um, burning them with cinders, um, filling the air with noise. Um, This was something that uh, immigrant activists of the time fought against um, really relentlessly. Um, And and their argument was that, um, you know, parks are priceless and precious for everyone. Everyone needs equal access to them. Everyone has a right to equal access to them. But this is not something that the city listened to at the time. Um, so, so I think history shows us that that this um, this conflict over East uh, East River Park um, has has deep historical roots. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But Marika Plater, thank you so much for joining us this evening on ninety nine point five FM. They're a historian of New York City parks, and uh, thank you for sharing uh, your your knowledge and your insights with us. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. We'll be back after this short break, and our uh, third guest will uh, also be talking a little bit about parks and the and the planet, uh, our good friend, uh, Reverend Billy.
That was 8th Avenue in the Park by Willie Cologne. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. And in our third and final segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about parks and the uh, fight for the planet. And we're, our special guest is uh, Reverend, Reverend Billy Talon from the uh, Church of a Not, uh, the Church of Stop Shopping. And uh, <laughs> Billy, uh, welcome to the show. Can you hear me? Yeah, hear you loud. Am, am I unmuted? Yes. Unmuted, undisputed. <laughs> Preaching. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um unfortunately we just have a very few minutes here at the end of the show, but uh coming out of that park segment um uh, with uh Marika Plater, uh can you talk a little bit about a, a campaign that you and the churches stopped shopping and other groups were involved with to uh get a uh certain pesticide out of the park system? <laughs> Marika could have um, talked about this for sure. Uh, the Monsanto's Roundup, the pesticide herbicide most popular in the world, um, was used for many years by the park system. Um, back when uh, Bertha Lewis could get the meetings, we we met with the commissioner and with the um, some of the deputies there. Uh, I think his name is Sean Cavanaugh. Am I getting that name right? And just we just implored them to uh, get out of this business of spraying carcinogenic pesticides. There was no way to keep them away from the picnic areas and the hiking areas and the recreational areas, the ballparks. Um, and we we failed to persuade them. The, the use of that pesticide had become very normalized throughout the United States. We believed from uh, Freedom of Information Acts that we were filing in, in uh, many states. We believe that more than 90% of uh, municipalities use uh, or used Roundup. Now, in the beginning of the Trump administration, Bayer purchased Monsanto. And at about that time, as most of us know, huge judgments were being awarded to um, to victims. Usually they had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, Iowa farmers, gardeners in California, so forth. So juries, not the EPA, not the people who are supposed to be regulators, juries stepped up, and they were the democracy, and that continues to this day. At this point, Bayer has lost so much money to lawsuits, tens of thousands of farmers gathered together in class action suits and so forth, just get some money together for their families before they die. Uh, Bayer is now worth less on the stock market than the price they paid for Monsanto. (laughs) Right. So uh, just to speed speed up here a little bit, because time is tight. I uh, understand city council, uh, I mean, passed a law or ordinance that, and, and now it's on the park system to implement it. Yes. Also, also spinning off of Marika's comments about the poorer parks, we discovered with the Freedom of Information Act uh, that we had filed the Church of Stop Shopping files um, in 2015, 2016. We discovered that the small parks are saturated with Roundup and glyphosate, the carcinogenic ingredient, and the wealthier parks, the conservancies, 
they don't have to get cancer because they can afford live gardeners to manage their weeds and their insects that they don't want. Uh, so that fired up much of the city council and Bertha Lewis at the Black Institute, Ben Kalos, um, who was involved with the kindergarten, her, uh, his children's kindergarten rose up and kind of became the, the poster children of resistance. And then um, other groups, Mitchell Cohen and yep. the No Spray Coalition and so forth rose up. And we were, you know, busting into their offices and singing on their desks. So we, we just kept up the pressure with our uh, trespassing. Okay. Now, we're, we unfortunately we only have about 30 seconds left here. You just came back from Minnesota where there's a huge uh, battle over a, a, um, a tar sands pipeline led by indigenous people in, in the rural corner of that state. Real, just real quickly, your, your thoughts or reflections on being there and what people should know about that. It was a revelation. It is the new Standing Rock. It shouldn't be necessary. A prayer walk coming down from the northern part of the Anishinaabe and, and Lakota treaty lands. Are, the prayer walk along the highway, we members of the choir joined uh, them walking this past week. And I just got back about an hour ago from that trip. They will be gathering at the um, state capitol in St. Paul on the 25th of August. And there's going to be a parallel action in Washington, D.C., shut down D.C. on the 23rd of this month. It's all run by mothers and grandmothers, indigenous families, and um, beautiful. And it will be successful. Enbridge Corporation is going down. Okay, Reverend uh, Billy Cowan, thank you for sharing that report in Minnesota. So we're going to have to wrap it up uh, for uh, this week's edition of uh, the Independent News Hour. We'll be uh, off the air next week, but back in two weeks. Uh, we Our uh, final song here, You'll Never Walk Alone, uh, performed by Nina Simone. I'd like to thank uh, Reggie Johnson, our board operator, our producer, Amba Gagarian. Also, we had help from Kenneth Lopez, Tarek Koff, and Ellen Davidson uh, with this show.